Uh, this morning we are <coughs> beginning a new session. So we have finished up one quarter. We're moving into a new quarter. But let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you so much for just the blessing of life and the blessing of spiritual life. We thank you that you have given us everything that we need for life and godliness. Starting with your word, we thank you that we can study it together freely in our, this country. We thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit uh, that illumines your word. And we thank you, Lord, for just um, giving us uh, the body of Christ, that we can get together and hear the word taught, that we can encourage each other uh, over your word. And we just ask that you just be with us now and fill us with your spirit. Bless all of our children's Sunday school teachers um, as they also study your word. And we just thank you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me, um, <coughs> we're going to do just a little bit of review before we get into this morning's lesson. I want to introduce this course, but also I want to take a moment to remind you why we do what we're doing here with our adult equipping school. This is our stated purpose. The adult equipping school is to train our families how to know, live, and speak God's word for his glory. So we want to, <coughs> during our times together, we want to impart um, good Bible teaching and theology. Um, <coughs> we don't want it just to become knowledge. We want it to be lived out in our lives. And we want to encourage all of us to, to speak and to share what we're learning uh, with our friends and family. Uh, it's our growing conviction. <coughs> There's a couple things at Cornerstone that, you know, that have just grown on us over the years. One is, is we're very committed to the preached word and to uh, the bulk of our preaching to be basically what we call expositional preaching, that we are just moving verse by verse through various books of the Bible. That doesn't mean that we don't hit theological topics. We think it's also important to hit certain theological topics, but if you've been here for very long, you'll see that <coughs> the, you know, one of the main pieces of our diet is just to move through the text, and that's what we're doing in the book of Genesis right now. And uh, we feel very strongly about that. At the same time, um, we do not believe that one Sunday morning sermon uh, can accomplish the full diet of God's people. Um, there, there are things that just cannot be accomplished in a 50-minute message. Sometimes it goes 55, sometimes it goes 60. But <coughs> there's just things that cannot be accomplished in a once-a-week Sunday morning uh, exposition of God's Word. And um, as elders, um, and you can, you know, if you ever talk to Pastor Milton about this, this is something that really hits close to his heart, is that we're just noticing that in the church in general, that there's really a dearth of knowledge in the body of Christ. You know, it used to be <coughs> that churches, um, like a traditional church, you would come to church for Sunday school and you would get instruction. Then you would attend a morning service and there would be instruction. <coughs> and then you would fellowship during the afternoon with your church family and potluck or whatever. Then you'd come back for an evening service and there'd be instruction. And then there would be family worship that went on during the week. And then the whole church basically would get back together on Wednesday night and there would be instruction. 
<clears throat> so for the gathered body of Christ, the traditional church used to have at least four times of instruction from their pastors. And, um, and today, <clears throat> in a lot of churches, the only time of instruction, the only time they're hearing from their pastors is one message on a Sunday morning. And even that, <clears throat> in a lot of churches today, has been reduced to about 30 minutes. And it's no wonder that when the church is being hit with the types of cultural issues that we see today, that the Bible has a lot to say about. Um, you have Christians who just don't know how to answer and don't know how to respond. In fact, we're seeing a lot of believers. It's, it's somewhat shocking sometimes to see some of the names, some of the pastors even, that you respect <coughs> that are caving in on very straightforward teaching of Scripture and caving into the culture. And we think that one of the reasons is is <coughs> the people of God um, are just not equipped, that people aren't equipped to deal with a lot of the things that our, our culture is presenting to us. And so one of the, just <coughs> one of the ways that we are trying to address this issue is, is, is Sunday school. There's been talk about different ways to do it during the evening, whatever. Uh, but while we are not Sabbatarian, you know, um, in the sense of believing or teaching that Sunday is the new Lord's Day and everybody must be, must rest from all labor on the Lord's Day, that's Sabbatarianism in a nutshell. <clears throat> we do believe in the traditional concept of the Lord's Day. Not in a legalistic sense, but it's just a wise, in our opinion, it's a wise thing to do what the church has been doing for a long time. And just as, as best as you can, if you're, as, unless you're providentially hindered, to make Sundays about God and his people. And so we, I want to just encourage you guys to consider that. Um, and you, I'm preaching to the choir here because you're here at 9 o'clock. But to, to spread this message that, that Sunday is a day to be with God's people as much as you can and and um, and to make it make a day of it, make a day of it. Um, <clears throat> and so what we're presenting, we're, we're presenting material in Sunday school that's not going to get covered in the sermon, both on the adult level, but also on the children, children's level. And we've coordinated the instruction to where what we're learning in here, the kids are also learning in there and at different levels. And and we're hoping that that's going to assist parents as they're going home and they're doing having family devotions and and they're able to talk through a lot of the exact same material um, that their their kids are learning in Sunday school I know it's been a blessing for me to come home after having taught this class and to be driving home and hear that Jaime has been teaching the exact same thing to my daughter um, or that Matthew Kaufman has been teaching the exact same thing to my son and we're able to talk about these things on the way home from church and talk about it during the week so <clears throat> the, the nutshell statement that we've, that we've been talking about as an elder board is that um, there is a deposit of truth that the Lord has given to the church, and the pastors of the church are responsible to cover that deposit of truth and hand it to God's people. And while we believe very strongly in the preached uh, exposition of the word Sunday mornings during the sermon, we do not believe that the Sunday morning sermon can carry the full or shoulder the full load of the whole deposit of truth that we believe God's people need to get. 
And so that's why we feel very strongly about Sunday school. Um, so I need to record this message and have it played during our, our service. Um, and so we want to encourage you guys to, to keep rolling. We, we're excited that you come. And, um, and uh, we're... And we're excited about what the Lord's doing. Um, we're g- I'm going to give you more information on this a little bit later, but um, starting in towards the, I think it's going to be the beginning of February, we're going to offer a short module that's going to run concurrent with this class on parenting um, for some of our um, kids, or young, no, I shouldn't say kids, I'm 47, so now I call them kids. Um, Young parents with younger kids, um, we're going to offer a, a, a course, and we'll be giving you guys more information on that. And that's going to run concurrent for about four to five weeks with this class. And so we'll give you guys more information as we get closer to that. All right, does that make sense? <coughs> so that's, that's what we're trying to accomplish uh, in these courses. We've just finished We Can Trust the Bible. In the We Can Trust the Bible course, the big thing that we've been doing is studying bibliology, trying to give us a philosophy of life. How do we read the Bible? How should we interpret the Bible? And how should we view the Bible in its application in our lives? Um, that's basically what these first 13 weeks have been all about, is the Bible can be trusted and we can apply it to our lives. In this course, we're, it's called God is Creator and Redeemer. And we're going to just start taking our philosophy of Scripture and start marching through the Bible chronologically, historically, and, and apply our bibliology to the various texts of Scripture. We'll do it today as we talk about creation, and we're going to get into creation days 1, 4, 5, and 6. We'll talk about some dinosaurs and dragons and things like that, Adam and Eve, how old the earth, and so on and so forth. Um, we, I'm not going to take a lot of time on review. I'm going to leave... Um, this to you guys. Um, we are going to jump right into the material for today. So let me skip by a lot of this. All right. What do you hope we will discuss in this class? You guys just saw a real quick flyby of some of the things that we're going to be covering. But let me just take a moment to hear from you. As you guys look over what, you know, and you know we're going to be hitting Genesis and a lot of the key issues in the early parts of Genesis. But does anybody have anything where you're like, man, I really hope we cover this? Rachel. Yeah. Great. So how to how to get a context for sharing Christ and uh, bringing the gospel to our friends and family. Cool. Other things that you're hoping we'll cover. Yeah, Ken. The problem of evil. Great. Yeah, we will hit that. Can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? 
if God's all-powerful and God's good, he can stop evil, but evil still exists. Why is there evil in the world? Say that part again. He is logical. That is right. Other things you guys are hoping. Yes. Oh, I thought I heard something from the baby. Okay. Thinking on it. Okay. Biblical parenting. Yes. We will hit that. Definitely. Anything else, you guys? Yeah, cool. So the timeline of what the Bible says and what evolution says, and we'll actually hit that this morning. So yeah, that's great. <coughs> cool. All right, well, let's jump into some things here. Um, let, me, let me start by asking, we're going to ask a couple questions. Um, what theology do you think, you know, we've been covering Genesis with the, in our preaching time. Um, what theology do you think arises out of Genesis 1 and 2? Or what are some things that, just in a first pass by, you think <coughs> would arise out of those chapters theologically? Okay, how God relates to man. Good. Yeah, Cynthia. Yes, the existence of God comes right there, right there in Genesis. Yeah, Ken. Good. So his dominion, his sovereignty. Excellent. What else would be some theological points, Joe? Okay, great. So how does God relate to man and nature? Mm -hmm. Anything else? Okay, just the fact that he's the creator <coughs> of everything comes right out of Genesis. Yes, <coughs> yeah, there's definitely um, the plurality of God or there's the seed form of the Trinity Right in Genesis one twenty six, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Um, in the first two verses, there seems to be seed forms or hints at the Trinity. Definitely. So we've got the Trinity in the first two chapters of Genesis. Anything else? All right. Let me some suggest a couple other things. It seems like we see the Trinity. And it's seed form, especially when we interpret the first two chapters through the New Test eyes of the New Testament. Um, we have the theology of death is established. Where death comes from is right there in Genesis 2. That death is not just a part of biological processes. It is something that was instituted by God for sin. We see the theology of marriage established in Genesis chapter 2 that Marriage is something that God created between a man and a woman, with the very first couple. It's not something that just evolved, um, or it's not just a social construct. It was created by God. We see the doctrine of sin <coughs> in chapter 3, verse 6. Um, we see Adam and Eve turning, deciding or giving in to the temptation of the devil and turning themselves over to sin. 
and uh, all the consequences of that. <clears throat> is sin something that we can discern um, outside of the Bible? Would we be able to develop a theology of sin outside of special revelation? Without special revelation? I don't think so. Because sin is against a person. That person is God. <clears throat> God is a spiritual being. So we're talking about metaphysical matters. Um, you could not just go into a laboratory and use the scientific method to arrive at sin. Sin is a matter of revelation. And so we see that in the, in the first opening chapters of Genesis. Um, the gospel is right there in the opening chapters of Genesis. <clears throat> God says, if you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Um, they do eat. God shows up on the scene, talks about um, how that the head of the serpent will be crushed by the heel of some future representative, and then he clothes Adam and Eve in what? Skins of an animal, <clears throat> and so you have blood, you have uh, substitution right there in the opening chapters of Genesis. And then you also have the doctrine of clothing. Why do we wear clothes? Do we wear clothes because the, all the hair eventually fell off of our body over the course of the evolutionary process? Or do we wear clothes because God made clothes for Adam and Eve? In the opening chapters of Genesis, you have some very clear theological statements on those matters. The existence of God, as you guys mentioned. The nature of God, the Trinity, death, marriage, sin, the gospel, clothing, God's sovereignty, his, uh, his uh, creation, and so on. So there's a lot of theology in these first two chapters. So how important do you think Genesis 1 and 2 are to the Christian faith? I would say, yeah, and that's what we're going to be arguing is that <clears throat> and based upon our bibliology and that we covered in the last 13 weeks, that all scripture is given by inspiration and that the scripture is sufficient um, and all scripture is inerrant and all the various things that we talked about in the class, these first two chapters are essential, essential to a biblical worldview. And so that's, <coughs> that's where we're going to begin in, in this course. Um, okay, let's, let's go ahead and, and look at a, a video um, that's going to kick us off on God as creator, and then we'll come back and start studying the word do I have to go one more one more And the evening and the morning 
for the first day. And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after its kind whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so, and the evening and the morning were the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. And God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that has life and birds that may fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of heaven. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply in the earth, and the evening and the morning with a fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth a living creature after its kind, livestock and creeping thing, and beast of the earth after its kind. And it was so. God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. In the evening and the morning, with the sixth day. sweet yeah i just wanted to put that together for you guys today that's a complete joke no that was um that's just a straight forward reading of genesis 1 so let's open up there 
Let's take a look at Genesis 1 as we're going to begin our seven C's, our chronological look at the Bible, starting with creation. And so we're going to start right in Genesis 1. Actually, you know what? That's right. Let's, let's actually open up to Hebrews first. Sorry about that. Hebrews 11. Then we'll go to Genesis 1. Hebrews 11. I'm going to start in verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. So, <clears throat> let me ask you guys a couple questions. Is there a debate? Um, is, is the debate for origins a matter of science or a matter of faith? According to this passage. Yeah, I want to suggest that it's a matter of faith. And the reason it's a matter of faith <coughs> is because there was only one being that was there. And that is God. None of us were there. Um, you can't use the scientific method to... To determine creation, what we have is God was there <coughs> and he reports to us. He gives special revelation on what happened. And, and the writer of Hebrews tells us, by faith, we understand. So we can understand what happened, not because we were there and we observed it, but because God has revealed it to us. By faith, we cannot just sit in darkness and hope and guess but by faith we can understand what is it that we can understand that the worlds were framed how by the word of god that god spoke and he created the worlds he created the universe so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. How does the writer of Hebrews know that the things that we see were not made of things that are seen? In other words, the writer of Hebrews could look out at his time at the world, just like we do today, and look at the sun, he can look at the moon, the stars, he can look at the animals, can look out at the whole world, and make this statement emphatically and say, we understand this. We know this. We don't doubt this, that the things which are seen were made of things which were not made of things which are visible. How does he know that? Say it again. Yeah, he knows it <coughs> by faith. That's by faith. <coughs> and and so the writer of Hebrews here there's a couple different things that, that he's arguing. He could be saying, 
I've received direct defined revelation now as I'm writing this passage to give you this information. Uh, but I don't know that that would fit the context because as the writer continues the rest of the narrative, he begins to speak of Abel and Cain and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Jacob and Sarah and so on. And where do we get all of that information? Where does all that come from? It comes from Genesis. And so I think a way that we can summarize this passage The writer of Hebrews is telling us that by faith we believe what has been reported to us by God in the Torah, specifically in the book of Genesis, um, that the worlds were framed by the word of God. And when you go back to Genesis, as we just heard, the Bible says, uh, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, or let there be light. And that's exactly what... Genesis reports is that God spoke and these things took place. And so he says, by faith, we know this. We read in the Torah, God has reported to us how the worlds were framed. And we know that God didn't take pre-existing material and form pre-existing material into the worlds. God spoke and it was there. So with that, let's turn back. Let's turn back to the information or the source of Hebrews material. The writer of Hebrews appears to have a source as he's quoting all these different historical accounts. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Let's just read. Uh, let's just read the first two verses together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Exodus, go to verse three. And then God said, "Let there be light," and there was light. Now, applying our um, approach, our hermeneutical approach, we introduced uh, last uh, quarter. Um, and as you guys have studied this passage together with us and through the preaching and in care groups, um, what type of literature would you say Genesis 1 uh, purports to be? Does this sound like an account <coughs> of a poem or another type of writing? Yeah, it seems to develop itself as a historical piece of literature. Um, We have all the time indicators of history. We have characters that are later mentioned uh, in uh, other other contexts. The text reads very much like an account of history. Um, uh, It does not have, remember, I'm trying to think in this class if we've talked about this yet. Um, I'm not sure what it, it, can anybody tell me uh, maybe through your own study if we haven't talked about in this class what is one of the foundational um, components of Hebrew poetry parallelism yeah um, there's not so much there's when you look at the Hebrew poetry there's not a lot of rhyme schemes but what you do see is couplets 
And for an example, let's, you know, let's go ahead and turn to Proverbs real quick. <coughs> let's take a look at Proverbs. And let's say, let's try, uh, let's say, like, let's try Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 1. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you, so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. There's another couplet. Yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding. Just in those first three verses, what you see is these couplets and sometimes we get what we call synonymous parallelism where the first part of the couplet or the second part of the couplet basically equals the first part of the couplet but just with maybe different terms sometimes you have contrasting um, parallelism where the second part of the couplet is the opposite of what is said in the first part and sometimes you have what's kind of like a stair step type of couplet and um, so there's that type um, there's also uh, there's types of uh, poetry, like say in Psalm 119, where every line begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So you would start with an aleph, and then the whole first stanza starts, every line starts with an aleph. Um, it's equivalent to our letter A. Um, and then you'll have some poems where it'll just, it'll just go all the way through the Hebrew alphabet. And so you don't have rhyme schemes, but... Um, a Hebrew reader would be able to very quickly pick up upon poetry. Um, and even when we're reading poetry, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's no literal interpretation within the poetry. There's just a lot of uh, figures of speech and so on and so forth. <coughs> but even figures of speech are meant to drive towards uh, a literal meaning. But there's none of those traditional indicators of poetry here in these opening chapters. In fact, Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 and so on, all of it fits the traditional methods or the, what we would consider the traditional approach to historical narrative. I'll give you one example <coughs> of a very common uh, device in Hebrew uh, historical narrative. Uh, his, Hebrew historical narrative, it's very common to get a chapter that will kind of give the overview and then there'll be the historical narrative will go back and focus in on particulars just this last week pastor milton went over chapter what chapter 10 and in chapter 10 we have the table of nations we have this overview of how all of the nations spread out this morning you're going to find that in chapter 11 now it begins to focus in on one aspect or the very beginning of that spreading out of the nations. This is very common in Hebrew narrative, historical narrative. Here's kind of an overview of the historical occurrence. Now we're going to focus in on particulars. See the same exact thing in Genesis 1 and 2. Here's an overview of what happened on day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, and so on. And then you get to chapter 2 and there's a focus in on particulars. Very common historical narrative device. And so, <clears throat> so we're arguing that this reads like history. What period of time does this passage describe? In the beginning. Yeah, so we don't, 
other than what the text reveals, it just says in the beginning. So when, when we see the word beginning, we would think what? The beginning. So whatever is being described, this seems to be, um, you know, we have Adam and Eve that, are, that come up in a few verses. We have animals. We have earth. We have sun. Everything that comes after verse 1 seems to come after the beginning. Would you agree? We say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then everything else that comes afterward seems to come after the beginning. And so we're getting a, descri- a description of historically what happened in the beginning. Who is doing the creating according to verse 2? Yeah, we have God and the Spirit of God um, are involved. Uh, verse 1 tells us that God created what? The heavens and the earth. Good. And how did the various parts of creation come into existence according to the text? He spoke. Yeah. As you read throughout this text, God speaks and things happen. God, it says, God said, let there be light and there is light. Um, so we're going to do an activity in a little bit about creation week. What, what phrases or words do we see repeated um, in this text? Okay, yeah, we see throughout the chapter, we, we see it as good. Then God said. Yes, evening and morning gets repeated over and over again. Yes, let there be according to their kind, and it was so. So there's a a lot of um, repeated phrases. Uh, What would you say is the main point, if we're just to summarize just what's on the page, what's the main point of this passage? Yeah, if we're just trying to just summarize exactly what the text says just try to boil it down to a sentence god created the universe and everything in it out of nothing in six days by simply speaking let me say that again god created the universe and everything in it out of nothing in six days by simply speaking i think that's a summary that just tries to pull its information right from the text i don't think we're trying to insert anything into the summary um we're just trying to say exactly what god seems to be saying in this passage he's creating the universe six days speaking it into existence what does this passage tell us about god based upon that fact Yeah, so God must be before the beginning. If, if he's there at the beginning, he must exist before the beginning. Good, what else? Yeah, he is all-powerful, omnipotent. The type of power and force for somebody just to speak, and then there is light. For someone to speak, and there is the earth. To speak, and there are animals. Just incredible Uh, power so we see the attributes of god uh let's see let's take a look how are we doing on time um let's take a look at a couple 
uh, particulars in verse one, we see that God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth. What does this mean? God created the heavens and the earth. What do you think heavens means? Does this mean that he created the immediate abode of God, like we die and go to heaven? Is it just talking he created this spiritual area where departed souls go to, they go to heaven? Okay, yeah, it could be the universe, could be... uh, Different places in Scripture, it seems like heavens refers to the stars and the area outside of the Earth's atmosphere, perhaps. And then the Earth and everything that's under it. I want to suggest that um, that heavens and Earth is is probably a way to describe everything in the universe. Similar to saying, um, you know, one time... When it rains at our house, the backyard, our backyard turns into Lake Berry. We don't have very good drainage back there. And um, one of my children, my one of my six-year-old children, which seven-year-old children, which will remain nameless, will frequently go out into the backyard and participate in Lake Berry. And if we're not if we're not keeping an eye on things, uh, it only takes a few minutes before he is covered head to toe in mud. Head to toe. Now, when I say head to toe, do I mean that just his head and just his toe have mud on it? What do I mean by that? Yeah, I mean, all of Sammy has been... Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry about that. All of Sammy has been covered with mud, head to toe, right? And that's a similar type of um, use of language, I think, that we have here with heavens and earth. We have, when we think of heavens, we're thinking of the heights. And then when we think of earth, it's not uncommon for the Bible to speak of earth as like the lower parts. And so we're talking about everything from the heights to the low parts. God created it all. Let's look at a couple. I'm going to actually just reference these because of time. Uh, Jeremiah 23, 24, God says, do I not fill heaven and earth? Is God saying that he just fills kind of the the star space and he just fills the land? No, it's he's saying I fill everything. Uh, It's similar to like a phrase like top to bottom or bow to stern everywhere. Um, See, Jeremiah 33, 25. Uh, speaks of the ordinances of heaven and earth. Psalm 69, 34 says, let heaven and earth praise him. So is that saying just the stars and just the planet should praise God? No, it's kind of top to bottom. Let everything praise the Lord. Uh, Let's look at a a couple other passages that um, indicate um, the the participation of the whole Trinity. Let's take a look at John 1, 3. Go ahead and turn there. So we've looked at Genesis, a couple verses in Genesis. Let's 
see how John picks up <coughs> the same theme and underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit <coughs> gives us some more data. We'll start in verse 1. In the beginning, same phrase, right? So if you've read Genesis, any, any good Jewish uh, reader and any Christian who's been reading his uh, Old Testament in the Septuagint, as soon as you see in the beginning, you already know what we're, where we're going. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. We find out later that the Word is whom? Jesus Christ, verse 14, says the Word became flesh, dwelt among us. Then in verse 3, all things were made through him, that is the word, and without him nothing was made that was made. So according to verse 3, who made the world? Who made everything? Jesus Christ. So Genesis tells us in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John 1, 3 tells us in the beginning the word created everything. There seems to be an equivalent, uh, equivalent between uh, God and and the word. Um, let's take a look at Hebrews 1-2. We're going to do some Bible drills here over the last few minutes. Hebrews 1-2. And we'll start in verse 1. God, who at various times and various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of what? All things through whom he also made the worlds. And so God made the worlds through him, Jesus Christ. Look at Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. And let's go Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For by him all things were created, context, Jesus. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth. There's our phrase again, heavens and earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And so we see in the creation passage as we read it through the eyes of the new testament the glass of the new testament that we have the uh, god involved clearly the father we have the spirit hovering over the deep we have jesus christ in the new testament being spoken of as participating in upholding all things and so and then we have jesus existing uh before all things so as we've talked about previously um, in our attributes of God section, God is eternal. He has no beginning, will have no end, but his creation is not eternal. It had a beginning before God created. There was no space, no time, no matter. Um, it's very difficult for us to understand this in our minds. But um, the Bible reveals that in the beginning, God created. We don't have eternal matter we have created matter, eternal God creating eternal matter. Um, now, this kind of begs the question, if if the text says God spoke and then it was there, um, how does that mesh with what so many people 
um, believe happen today. We look at the Bible, we believe by faith that God formed the worlds out of nothing, merely by speaking. And yet, <clears throat> the average um, you know, person that's graduating from our colleges today or what people are being taught in their public schools, they're going to be taught that our universe is 13 billion years old, that the earth is about 4.5 billion years old, and that it did not, was not spoken into existence, that God, that the universe has just evolved, and everything that we see has come about by a very slow process. The one thing that there does seem to be agreement on, though, is according to the Big Bang Theory, there was nothing or Somehow, there was a bang, and then material materialized about 13 billion years ago, and then we have our, the universe, the kickstart of the universe. And so there does seem to be some agreement on that. And as we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks, uh, many believers, many Christians would look at their Bible and look at what they're studying in their science books and say, we can't really take the Bible at face value. We have to, first of all, prove the Bible. We have to prove the Bible scientifically. And if science doesn't seem to support our faith starting point, then we need to just frankly admit that maybe that's not what Genesis was written for. Maybe Genesis wasn't really meant to tell us about our origins maybe it's poetry maybe it's a, a good spiritual story for encouragement because science seems to be pretty clear let's let's look at a, a scientist paul davies physicist and evolutionist in his book the edge of infinity describes the big bang in this way so this is a physicist expert in um, Big Bang Theory says this, the Big Bang represents the instantaneous suspension of physical laws, the sudden abrupt flash of lawlessness that allowed something to come out of nothing. It represents a true miracle. Here's my question for Mr. Davies. Why is this more scientific that in, than in the beginning God created? Again, let's read his statement. This is coming from a physicist. The Big Bang represents the instantaneous suspension of physical laws. Is that science? No, he's frankly admitting that this, he's now delving into philosophy, what we call metaphysics. He's trying to answer, he's trying to deal with a question that cannot be circumscribed by the scientific method. And in that respect, I actually have a lot of respect for this statement. Because he's telling us that when we're talking about the, be the beginning, when we're talking about the Big Bang, it's outside of the realm of science. It's the suspension of physical laws, the sudden abrupt flash of lawlessness that allowed something to come out of nothing. He's admitting ex nihilo, something came out of nothing, and it represents a true miracle. So I have a lot of respect for this statement. That he's basically saying that we frankly acknowledge that the Big Bang, the kickstart of our universe, is a question that goes beyond science. And it isn't any more scientific than in the beginning God created. The difference is, is God was there, Paul Davies 
wasn't. And God tells us exactly how things began. Uh, let's actually, you know what? Let's turn to. Uh, let me see how much time we have. We have four minutes. Let's turn to Psalm 33. And then we might need to save the order of the universe till next week. We'll see. Maybe I can give you the whole order of the universe in just a few minutes. That's supposed to be a joke. Psalm 33. Boy, I'm really rolling this morning. Psalm 33, verse 1. Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous. So praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with the heart. Make melody to him with an instrument of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. For the word of the Lord is right. And all his work is done in truth. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. We would all just look at that passage. One of my favorite passages in all the Bible and say, Amen. And then it tells us in verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. How were the worlds made? By his word, by his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap and lays up the deep in the storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord and all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why should we stand in awe of him? Why should we fear and worship God? Verse 9, for he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. He spoke. He commanded in a story. Now, again, I mean, this is in a piece of poetry right here, but this seems to comport with Genesis and it begin, it's, it's a foundation for worship. If we're to worship God, we're to worship and fear almighty God. One of the basis for that worship is the fact that God called the whole universe and everything in it into existence by merely speaking and it stood. A very important passage. Here, we'll do our, our flyby in one minute and 30 seconds on the Big Bang versus creation, and then we'll come back and review this next week. Here's, here's, here's a problem. We could say it's clear that there is a difference between what the Bible says about God speaking all things into existence and what the common theory says about the Big Bang and things evolving. And many Christians today, in all sincerity, would try to say, well, God just used the Big Bang and used evolution in order to accomplish his purposes. But as we're going to develop more next week, you run into some huge problems if we're going to take our literal, straightforward approach to the Bible in the, in the Genesis. <clears throat> On the left-hand side, you have evolution. On the right-hand side, you have the Bible. Evolution says the sun and stars existed before the earth. The Bible says the earth was created before the sun and stars. Big problem. Evolution says the sun is earth's first light. The Bible says the light on earth came before the sun. Number three, first life equals marine organisms. In the Bible, first life equals land plants. On the left, reptiles predate birds. On the right, birds predate land reptiles. On the left, land mammals predate whales. On the right, whales predate land mammals, animals. 
On the left, disease, death precede man's sin. On the right, disease, death are the result from man's sin. It's completely the opposite. And so how do our brothers and sisters who believe that God used evolution get around this? There's really the main way to get around this is you have to say Genesis 1 is not a straightforward historical account. It contradicts scientific theories of today. And so we must interpret the Bible, not according to the way that we would interpret the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We must interpret this section not according to the way that we would interpret Jesus' death on the cross. Not according to the way that we would interpret the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Not according to any of the ways that we would interpret the Gospels. Now we're going to go to what seems to be a straightforward narrative historical reading. And we're going to now interpret it as poetic or some other way in order to get it to mesh with current scientific theory. In my opinion, that's a big problem. As we looked at a couple weeks ago, it's not like you can just set aside creation as a non-essential doctrine and kind of make that poetry and allegory and secure the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, his baptism, his death, burial, and resurrection, his soon return, and suddenly keep all of that literal. And that's exactly where theologians have gone. The German theologians of the 1800s tried to move into higher criticism and try to answer the, uh, the intellectuals of their day and tried to secure the core of Christianity and it wasn't more than a generation before they had given up the whole core. They had given up the atonement. They had given up the uh, res- literal resurrection of Christ. Um, and so it's, it's tough to, to keep both. You can't have your cake and eat it too. Right? All right. Any, um, we'll, we'll go back and review. And you guys have a handout actually that you can run through uh, on your own this week for homework and compare Um, The order of evolution with the order of creation in Genesis 1. Uh, Any comments, questions, criticisms, or concerns? It's got to be one. Yeah. Yeah, I am too. Really looking forward to it. So next week, we're going we're gonna to go back and start reviewing creation days one to four. Um, so we're going to study those together. Um, here's where this class, what we're, what we're going to do um, that wasn't directly dealt with with the sermon series is, is we're going to be trying to look at Gen- uh, the first four days of creation and also try to see what other people say about the first four days of creation that don't believe in taking Genesis as a straightforward reading. And so we want to do so so that you understand what the arguments are and and what are the responses apologetically to the reading that we are giving to Genesis and why it's important. And so we want to arm you with that information. Um, We're going to be dealing with some apologetics um, on creation and so on and so forth. And... um, and we want, we want to be able to, frankly, be able to answer and, and talk to people in our world that have questions about uh, evolution. I think I've mentioned this in the past, but um, 
it seems like as I as I more and more as I'm doing evangelism, um, I don't even have to bring it up. Evolution just comes up. People, one of their first arguments tra- against the gospel is evolution. And uh, I, st- I try to bring up sin and Christ and and uh, his substitutionary atonement. And one of the first points of attack is how can I believe all that nonsense when you've got a Bible that talks about six day creation and God creating uh, all the world with his spoken word. And you guys were dinosaurs and you've got this worldwide flood and all that nonsense. And uh, that becomes the argument to reject Jesus Christ. So anyway, we're going to try to arm you guys with with how to respond to that. All right, let's go ahead and pray, and I'll I'll be up here to talk to you or any questions you guys have afterwards. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Uh, We thank you for just your power that's represented when we look around the world, and we see that there everything has has is here. And when we look at the Bible, we see how it came to be. Uh, By faith, we see that the worlds were made. Uh, as you spoke all things into existence, not from pre-material, but from nothing. And uh, we thank you that we can believe you. You were there. You've reported it to us faithfully. And that when we look at the world, um, that uh, reality comports with what your word says. And um, we just pray that we be able to go out in confidence and uh, in humility and speak your truth and to fear you and worship you. And we pray that more and more that more and more people in our world uh, would be drawn to worship you because you have spoke all things into existence and it has stood firm. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.